lift up your faithfulness. And, and yet, I felt like as I was singing, we sometimes need to confess that when we see circumstances in life, we, we question whether we're going to be able to get through it. Or how are we going to figure this one out? Or how are we going to deal with that problem? Or how are we going to fix that broken thing? How are we going to correct that child? We, we, we have all these questions about how we're going to navigate the difficulties of life. And yet when we sing a song like this and, and we, we magnify your faithfulness, that you'll always be there for us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, it, it puts our issues in a new light. It puts our health concerns in a new light. It, just, it, it puts our relationships in a new light. Not that there's not brokenness in the world, not that, not that sin doesn't do incredible damage. We recognize that. We recognize that Satan is an adversary that likes to devour people. And yet, we know to be prayerful and on the watch because you're there for us. You're for us. As we said earlier, you fight for us. And that none of these things can ultimately thwart your good and perfect plans. Somehow you turn even the hard things the bad things, somehow you turn them around and can bring glory to yourself through them. Thank you for always being for us even when we are stubborn and going our own way. Thank you for bringing us back into the fold. Your faithfulness is so great. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, Pastor Andrew, could you help me bring this table onto the stage for me? Thank you. We'll go up this way. And we'll, I think we'll put it right here. Great. Thank you. All right, would you turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi 2, verse 10. So, I came in this morning and uh, Braden was talking to me. And he said, he, he looked me in the eye and got a serious look on his face and he said, Dad, your whole career depends on this sermon. And I thought to myself, I'm preaching on divorce today. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I was thinking, uh, somebody else said, you got to start, someone else told me earlier this week, Pastor, you got to start upping your game on the sermons. And, and I said, why? And, and they said, have you sat in those chairs yet? They're awfully comfortable. <laughs> so, this is me upping my game. We're in Malachi. 
Sorry for the feedback. Is it where I'm standing? Is that, is that the weird thing? I can't move it now. I'm, I'm committed. Um, we're in Malachi. Malachi is written to a very uh, stubborn and apathetic Israel. Uh, they are they're back in the land after 70 years of exile. Babylon took over. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was there during that time. You know that story. And then... Uh, the Persians took over, and the Persians let Israel go back to the land. And they were glad to be back, but they started to question, you know, why, is it, why didn't God take care of us for 70 years? Like, why did he let that happen to us? You know, what's up with that? And, and they began to grow very apathetic, maybe bitter, and, and they let that affect how they related to God. And, and so Malachi is kind of like a series of questions for God, kind of like, you know, what's the problem that people are asking? You know, do, do you really love us? And, and why, why didn't you take care of us during that time? Why didn't you stop the exile from happening and the, the violence and the devastation? You know, why didn't you stop that? And God's answering their questions, hence the, the sermon series called Q&A with God. And uh, so they're at a, at a place now where they are offering sacrifices to God. We don't do that anymore because Christ was the final sacrifice. And even though they're offering sacrifices, God is not blessing them. And last week we saw one of the reasons is because they were offering bad sacrifices. They were like the worst animals that you could offer. And the blind animals, the lame animals, they were giving God their worst instead of their best. And so we spent the time talking about what does it mean to give God your best. Today, um, we're looking at Malachi 2, and we're looking at marriages and, and being faithful to the vows you've taken. Now, I want to make it clear that um, this is not going to be one of those beat the sheep kind of sermons, you know. I, I don't like doing that. Uh, I, I just want to preach the text, and I want to um, talk about marriage. And, and so no one's going to get beat up. If you've been divorced, this is not like... There's no target on you at all. I, I don't want you to feel that way. Um, that's not how it is. But I do want to talk about faithfulness in, in two different areas. And uh, this is, these are areas that God cares about. So uh, look at Malachi 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah's been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whomever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. And another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings, or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It's because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to one he should protect, 
says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Some of your translations uh, say it differently depending on how, the Hebrew re- how, how you try to read the Hebrew. Some in verse 16 says, For I hate divorce and I hate a man's covering with himself with violence as with a garment. Uh, there's a couple different readings of that, but I think the point is still the same. This is how God feels. This is what he thinks about divorce. So, um, there's a couple things going on here. And if you look at verse 11, um, I'm sorry, let, let, let's do 13 first. Uh, Judah's talking here, and, and, and they're very sad. They're upset. It says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because God no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. So here's what's going on. They're offering sacrifices to God, and it seems like God is withholding his blessing from them. He's not blessing them or their offerings. And they're thinking, I'm doing what you ask, right? I've given you the sacrifice, right? I I showed up, right? And and God's going, no, I don't don't want that. You keep it. Like think Cain and Abel, right? Uh, They both offer a sacrifice. Cain's is rejected. Abel's is accepted. And these people, the Israelites, are saying, why won't you accept what I've given you? What's going on? And, And I think underneath that question is, why won't you bless me? Why does it seem like heaven's doors are just shut when it comes to blessing? Why don't I see your hand on my life? What's going on? That's their question. Why won't you bless me? If I had to rephrase the question, maybe I'd even say it like this. If they weren't so blind to how they're treating God, you could even phrase the question like this. Does it really matter how I treat you? Can I offer you blind animals? Can I do whatever I want? Does, does your law matter? Does, does it really matter what I do with what you've told me? Do I really have to obey? But really their question is, why won't you bless me? What's going on? And God says, I'll give you two answers why I'm not blessing you. And the first one's in verse 11. Uh, verse 11 says, Judah's been unfaithful. A detestable thing's been committed in Israel. And, and then it says... Um, uh, Judah's desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. This is the first issue, which is 1A. They were marrying unbelievers. They were marrying unbelievers. And, and God had commanded against that. He told them not to do that. He's got good reasons for it. If you want to bring up the king's passage, this is Solomon. Solomon grew old and his wives, he married lots of wives, lots of women who were, had worshipped other gods. And it says his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Because he married women who worshipped other gods, he began worshipping other gods. Who you marry is important. Their faith is important. You think about what Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians. We can put that one up. Uh, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Next part. Uh, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God wants to make a people for himself, and when you get married to someone who's not a believer and you are a believer, you've united yourself with somebody that's not part of God's people, and yet you're part of God's people. Now, Paul would also deal with the idea that sometimes in a marriage, one person gets saved later, and one person stays an unbeliever. You know, What do you do then? And Paul says, well, live with them. 
Don't divorce them. Live with them. But if they divorce you, let them go. But, but, but he's saying you've got you to gotta preserve the marriage even if you're married to an unbeliever after the fact and, and, and you got saved. But in this case, God is saying, don't marry someone who doesn't believe in me. Teenagers, this is for you. This is totally for you. You, you know how it is? Um, I saw this. Um, Christian friends who, who would date someone who's not a Christian. And, and, and you know the ultimate answer for that, right? Well, it's, it's missionary dating, right? You're going to get them saved, right? Right? Come to church with me, and then we'll go out for, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, that, in general, I would say that's not a wise thing. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I could tell you stories about people who... Um, I think Pastor Brian, our interim pastor before me, had a great story where I think he ended up sharing his faith with Donna, and she got saved. I don't think, I don't think they were dating, though. I, th- I think he was interested, but he shared his faith, and she became a believer. So I'm not saying that you can't, you can't go out with a group of friends and, and happen to share your faith with someone of the opposite sex. That's great. You could do that. But when you get into a romantic relationship, and it's, it's moving, you know, you're moving forward with this relationship, and they're not a believer, your heart's getting connected to them. And you might even say, I, I love them. And you're going to use all the other romantic, mushy language that I won't mention up here. But, um, but, but you're loving somebody in a romantic way that doesn't believe in Christ. And that's not wise because you're in the light and they're in darkness. And what happens if they don't ever want to accept the light? Then what are you going to do? Because now you're, your heart's all connected here. and It's like this. When, uh, when, when Christy and I were first married, and she wasn't a believer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. When we were first married, <laughs> I just slipped out. Uh, when we were first married, Christy was a believer. Um, and uh, we would, uh, I, I've always been more of the night owl than Christy. You know, I, I like to read late at night. I, I can watch movies late at night. And, and Christy would always want to go to bed earlier. Um, and sometimes we'd be, we'd be in bed, you know, and, and I would have a little lamp and I would turn it on. Or I'd buy one of those book lights you can, you can connect to your book and it shines a light down on your book, you know, and you can read while the other person's trying to sleep. But Christy couldn't sleep with that light on. So she just had to get used to having that light on. No, actually, I had to turn the light off. I had to turn the light off. You remember this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to turn the light off. And this is what it's like. When you're, when, when you're in the light and you're married to someone that's in darkness, no, no, I'm talking spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. <laughs> I told you it was going to be a hard topic and I was going to try to keep it light. And I think I have. But... Um, <laughs> Braden, I'm not getting fired today. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but really, on, on the serious side of this is, I've sat down in the room with the couple that wants to get married, and they want me to do the wedding, and one's a believer and one's not a believer, and, and I point this out, and, and typically the response I get is, it really can't be that serious. I love this person and they love me, and our love will carry us through. But when the darkness and the light collide, what compromises will you make? What what will you have to give up because you need to please that person now and that person dislikes your faith? 
What happens to your kids when they see one parent that loves this and one that loves that? What happens? Because Malachi says God is looking for godly offspring. So what happens to those godly offspring when they see light and darkness like that? Don't do it. Don't do it. They were marrying unbelievers. Uh, Secondly, they were uh, divorcing their wives. They were divorcing their wives. Uh, And so God says, don't break faith with the wife of your youth. So I'm taking that to mean they they married young. Maybe it was an arranged marriage. I mean, that's very common, very typical. And, And they probably had all the right reasons, right? You know, I was married so young. I was... 12, I was 13, and, and my, my parents did this, and, and, and so I had to do it, and, 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 and I don't love this person, and all the right excuses. But they were divorcing their wives. Let me deal with that, because God uh, takes a little more time to deal with how he feels about divorce here, uh, and it goes really into detail. If you want to know the detail on um, the first part, part A, with the marrying unbelievers, uh, God actually, I'm actually surprised that it, it reads like this, you know, but um, here it is, verse 12, the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob. Just cut him out for taking on an unbelieving spouse. Yeah, that's heavy. I'm not saying that has a direct application today. And Paul, like I said, Paul writes pretty in an interesting way on this whole believer-unbeliever thing. But for them, he's saying, this should be a person who's cut off. Okay, um, divorcing wives, though. Let's get back to that. Why, why is this such a serious deal? You know, I'm not a Hebrew expert, so I'm not going to comment on whether the Bible should read I hate divorce versus um, the, the other way that the NIV reads sometimes. And so I, I, there's two different ways to understand that. But the point is the same. God is against divorce. Why? Why is he against divorce? What's the prophetic word on that? Um, well, let's do this. Let's look at three reasons in the text for why. Um, It says in verse 14, You ask why. Why won't you bless me? It's because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So A, why does God hate divorce? Divorce is the breaking of a covenant. Divorce is the breaking of a covenant. That that you made an agreement, and, and just as Eric reminded us today, The guest of honor at every Sunday worship service is the Lord. He's here. And at your wedding ceremony, he was there. And he heard the words you said. He saw you. He heard the vows, whether you wrote them or whether you had the old, uh, you know, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse. He heard it all. And you made a covenant that day. And if you doubt that, I mean, you you even had a marriage license. You had to sign that thing. And turn into the government. I mean, it was, it was a real deal. It was a contract you made. And yes, I know there was a lot of love that day and a lot of great romantic feeling, but that was a serious day too. It was a celebration, but it was a serious day because you made a covenant that day. And God heard it. And so when we make these vows, God intends for us to do what we said we we're going to do. Uh, one time I had a young man uh, want to write his own vows, and in his vows he put, I will never be angry with you. And I said, you can't do that. You can't say those words in church. I won't let you, because you'll never be able to keep that vow. You know? You'll never be able to do it. 
And so he thought about it. And he was like, I, I, don't, I just don't want to be one of those husbands that's like, oh, and raging. And, you know, I'm like, that's a good word. And I appreciate that. How could you say that differently? And so I let him, I, I, didn't, I didn't give him an out. You know, like he, he had to figure out how he was going to say it. So he rewrote it. it. There were his words. And he said, I will not harbor anger. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. I won't hold on to my anger. I won't let it fester. I won't grow bitter. I won't let that thing, I'll deal with my anger. I'll resolve my anger. I'll forget. Oh, that's beautiful. And so we went with that. Um, another guy uh, wrote his own vows, and he, 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 he was great. I mean, he kind of had like a, it was great. He, at the end of his vows, I remember him saying, and there's no refunds. I was like that again. That was beautiful. It was awesome, and and I'll never forget him doing that. So there, there's a sense in these vows. We take them, and they're meant to be kept forever. Yes, I know there are certain sins that can come in and break a vow. I know adultery breaks vows and breaks a marriage. And Jesus says that's an exception. You can get divorced when adultery happens. I understand that, but for these other situations, you should keep your vows. Divorce is the breaking of a covenant. And God takes those words we said seriously. Secondly, uh, we could say divorce separates uh, what God has done in joining a man and woman. So if we keep looking at our passage here, um, it says in verse 15, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. So, So God has done this making. God has made oneness. Some of your translations read, God has made them one. I think that's a better way of of saying the Hebrew. God has made them one. He's made you one. So divorce separates God's joining of a man and a woman. He did this. He enacted this. Now, uh, you know, try explaining oneness. And, and, and And it's incredibly deep. But... You walked down the aisle and, and you went to the front of the church and you were two people. And then you made that covenant. And then you consummated the covenant that evening. And God did, a, God did this. God did this mysterious work of taking two people with different personalities, different thoughts about life. One wants to light on at night and one wants to just go to bed, you know, and, and, and how are you going to read in the dark? How I don't know. Thank goodness for Kindles, right? You know, um, and uh, all, all sorts of different ways of doing life. And God said, "I'm going to take these two very different people and make them one." Divorce comes along and says, "I'm going to separate it," which is why Satan's probably his main strategy for married couples is, "I'm going to make them two, I'm trying to make them two. I want them to act. I want them to parent differently." And I want them to do their, think about their marriage differently. And I want them to be very different in God. So I'm trying to make them, even in their uniqueness, I'm trying to make them one. Uh, last week, we had an awesome game night at our house. I think it was Tuesday. No, Monday night. We, we played apples to apples. And as usual, I lost and Christy won. That's just par for the course in our house. Um, she always wins. And after apples to apples is over, um, lots of yelling, you know, just great laughing and yelling and and uh, Caitlin got some dominoes out. And she, she started to set them up. Now, I was in the living room talking with Christy, and Caitlin's setting up dominoes in, in the kitchen. Suddenly I hear this. 
And then I hear crying. Apparently, Grayson had come in and said, look at those dominoes. And just knocked them all off. Now, Kaylin was upset because I don't know how long she'd worked on dominoes. I wasn't timing it, but Grayson just messed it up. And you parents, you've been there. You've seen this, right? When your kid's building something and, another, and the sibling comes along and just, you know, not, the Legos get knocked over, the tower comes down, and this day the dominoes, I'm going to trip on one of these, and this day the dominoes went crashing down. And, and, and it's hard because with dominoes, if you're going to set them up and, and knock them over and make like a pattern, you have to wait till you're all the way done, right? And, and once you get all the pattern done, then you, t- and then you tip the one and then watch it all. But if someone comes in and just knocks them all over, yes, the result is the same. It's all messed up, but it wasn't beautiful anymore, you know? <laughs> and, and all that work you put into it was just smashed. And I think when I read God in the Bible saying, what God has joined, let no man separate. It's as if he is saying, look at what I built. Look at what I built. Don't smash what I built. Don't wreck what I built. In fact, what I built is supposed to be a picture of Jesus and the church and how Jesus is always faithful to the church and the church obeys Christ. That's the way it's supposed to be between a husband and a wife. Faithfulness. I'll never leave you. And so marriage, God picked a fragile institution like marriage to illustrate his unending faithfulness. Maybe you can ask him why one day he chose marriage as that picture, but he did. And he built it. He did it. If you thought your marriage day was just about what you and your spouse were doing, God says, no, it's about what I am doing also. Don't destroy my work. Number three, uh, the last reason we can look at here is divorce has a negative impact on children. Verse 15, uh, middle of the verse, what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard, don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. He's seeking godly offspring. And then later in verse 16, it says, uh, no matter how your translation reads, there's this mention of violence. Has not the one God made? This is a really hard verse to translate, as I said earlier. You belong uh, uh, to him in body and spirit. I'm sorry, verse 16. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Some, Some of your more literal translations say something like, I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with uh, clothing. It's it's kind of a hard it's a hard Hebrew verse to translate, but there's definitely the mention of violence in the context of divorce, and I think this is the point: divorce does violence to family. It hurts. I think that's just, that's just simple. No matter how you translate the Hebrew, I think it's simple. It just hurts. It hurts the people going through it, even when it's legitimate reasons. It's going to hurt, and it's going to impact your kids. There's a, a study done that there was a book written, and this wasn't um, this book wasn't it's not like scientific research, but um, there was a woman named uh, Judith Wallerstein, and she wrote a book called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. And for 25 years, she documented 131 children whose parents went through divorce, and, and just interviewed them and talked to them, and 
asks them what life has been like. And, and, and they mention things like, well, you know, my ability to trust has been affected. My expectations about relationships have been affected. My ability to cope with change has been affected. As they grew up into adults, some of them were um, a little more anxious about how the relationships would play out, as if the wrong thing would, would happen and a relationship would just break and you couldn't do anything about it. It, just, it would just happen. It was almost like they were waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, something's going to break. I'm just waiting. Again, it wasn't a scientific study. It was more just interviewing 131 people and how things played out in their life. And certainly they had many success stories about people who worked through their issues, you know, worked through the, and, and came out healthy on the other side. The Lord can do those things. They can also be hard and, and, and more negative things can result as well. What we do has an impact on our kids. And, and you know that. That's obvious parenting 101. What we do as parents has an impact on our kids. And God wants godly offspring. He wants a family where the husband and the wife love the Lord and worship Him and the kids also love the Lord and worship Him. He wants to raise up godly offspring. So... If these things, if these are reasons why God is against divorce, what does God require of us? What does he want from us? What, what should we do to protect ourselves? How do you divorce-proof your marriage? And, and really, it's simple. He gives two things right here. Uh, so be on your guard. Some translations say, guard your spirit and do not be unfaithful. Or, or some translations say, do not break faith. Guard your spirit. Be faithful. That's what it says. So when it says guard your spirit, I'm kind of thinking, you know, that means there's things attacking. And I need to be on guard for, from certain things. And I, I just kind of tried to pray through this and think about what are those kind of things you want to be on guard from? Let me offer four. I'm sure there's more. But, but four things you could be careful of and be on guard from in your own marriage. Uh, first of all, you got to guard your spirit from emotional baggage. Uh, Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. When I, when I read that, I think to myself, i got to make sure that whatever I'm mad at my spouse for, that I've talked about that with them, given them the chance to apologize, offered forgiveness, and then walked away from it. If, if my emotional life is like a bucket and I start to pour negative emotions into it, I've got to make sure I empty the bucket because at some point the bucket's going to start overflowing. And that's when divorce starts looking like an option because I haven't emptied the bucket. So you've got to guard your spirit from emotional baggage. There, there's stuff that happens in a marriage and nobody else knows, but you know what those things are. Have you discussed them? Have you apologized for them? Have you offered forgiveness so that you can walk away from it and say, I'm done with that, it's resolved. Don't let it pile up. Uh, secondly, I'd say you've got to guard your spirit 
from worldly views of life and marriage. James talks about a, a wisdom that comes down, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. James is saying the devil impacts how we look at life. So it's very possible that the world will say this is important and God says, eh, that's not the way I view things. My wisdom's different. I'll give you one. It's one that I hear often. Is your marriage designed to make you happy? And if you can find a verse that says that, I'd love to see it, but I don't see it. Now, do I believe there's joys in marriage? Yes. Do I believe the intimacy in marriage is supposed to be beautiful? Yes. Absolutely. But if you're telling me that marriage is designed primarily to make me happy, then why in the world is it hard? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why can you ask any married person and they're going to say, there are hard days? Really? It's not happy every day? No. Worldly wisdom would say, if you go through a long period of time of unhappiness, then you probably don't love the person anymore. Or if you do love them, your happiness is still more important here in this equation. Why don't you get out of it and find someone who will make you happy? Hasn't it been enough years? And you'll see, and I've seen this before, you know, some parents will wait until their kids graduate from high school and that's the magic time to pursue a divorce because they, they want to ease it a little bit easier on their kids. But ultimately, they're committed to, I want to be happy, and this doesn't make me happy. Let me tell you, if God is faithful, he will help you in your unhappiness. And he can do a work of restoring the marriage so that you do experience happiness, or he can make you happy as you please him and as you stay committed to the spouse of your youth. He can make you happy in Christ. Well, either of those options. I know option A would be better to make you happy together, but maybe you're married to a person who doesn't make that easy. Guard your spirit from views of marriage that are not uh, biblical. Uh, Next, uh, guard your spirit from dissatisfaction with your spouse. Uh, Proverbs 5.19b, may you ever be captivated by her love. Guard your spirit from dissatisfaction. Now this sounds like the opposite of what I just said. You know, marriage won't always make you happy, but there is a part where when two people, I'm, I'm talking to two people who love the Lord and are committed to Him, don't you think you should be satisfied with the person you married? You should be. And so when you start looking out at other people and, and, and when those thoughts enter your mind, I could have somebody else. You've got to guard yourself from that and say, no, you're the person I chose and I will do anything in my power to be satisfied with you. Whatever I can do, I want to be satisfied with you. Uh, Proverbs 5.19 is actually a verse celebrating uh, sexual love. I mean, that, that's the reference to it. I'll do anything that I can do in my power, as long as it's righteous, to be captivated by you. And finally, let's offer this one. Um, Guard your spirit from an unrepentant heart. Guard your spirit from an 
repentant heart. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce of your wives because your hearts were hard. That's the word there, hard. But this was not the way it was from the beginning. A hard heart is a heart that won't repent. I mean, even in a marriage where something big happens, like uh, unfaithfulness of some sort, um, even when you have adultery, there's still opportunity to reconcile, to forgive. There's opportunity. Now, I'm not saying the Bible requires you to do that. Jesus doesn't require you. But when you have a hard heart, I think, I think what he's referring to is, I won't repent. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think it, w- w- what they were talking about in Matthew 19 is, um, they were talking about uh, an Old Testament law that talks about uh, your partner doing something um, unseemly, and it referred to adultery. And, and, and Jesus is saying that there's a hardness of heart that might even cause a person, I think, to continue in adultery and say, I'm not going to change. You've got to repent. And if you've got to repent over big things, you've got to repent over small things. How hard will your marriage be if you're the kind of spouse that will never say you're sorry for anything? How hard will your marriage be if you can't admit you're wrong? I know it's hard. I get it. And when you know that they have to own part of it, and you say, well, if they own their part, I'll own my part, and God never requires that of you. He only requires your part. Apologize for your part. And then let him work on your spouse. Don't let yourself get a hard heart. Don't close yourself off. When you've sinned, you apologize, and then you receive forgiveness. Uh, one thing I didn't get into this morning as we get ready to close here is I didn't get into like the, the um, what can you divorce for. I'll talk about that a little bit during cross training. That's 1045 if you want to come back. Um, I'll get into a little bit of the background in the Matthew passage and the 1 Corinthians passage. But our teaching here is there are two large categories of the, the Bible allows for divorce in these circumstances and remarriage. When there's adultery, I already talked about that. And the second category is when an unbeliever divorces you, when an unbeliever deserts you. Are there other difficult situations that arise? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think the one I get asked the most often about is abuse. I've wrestled with that one. If you want to know how difficult it is to wrestle with abuse from a biblical standpoint, let let me just point this out to you. Let's say you're married to an unbeliever. And this unbeliever is abusive. And Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, if that person's willing to live with you, you should live with them. And uh, let's say then you say, well, he's willing to live with me, but I can't live with him because of the abuse. So I've got to leave. Some pastors will say, well, then you ought to separate from them, but separate from the person, but don't divorce him because you made a vow. Separate, but don't divorce. But then I go to a couple chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians where it says don't deprive each other of, well, intimate love between a man and a woman. Don't deprive one another of that except by mutual consent and set aside that time so you can pray. So, Paul, you're telling me that sexual love can't be deprived and yet I'm not supposed to divorce. So what's the answer? Is separation the answer? Because if I'm separated, then I'm depriving. And if I divorce, I'm not supposed to... It's, it's difficult. 
I'll tell you personally that I've tried to look at, when it comes to physical abuse in my heart, I've tried to look at it as a sense of abandonment. You're not, you're not allowing me to live in this house safely. And it's, it's tantamount to desertion. If I can't live here in a safe way, I can't live here at all. And it's like you've deserted me. You've abandoned the marriage. That's how I've processed abandonment, uh, 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 abuse. That's a personal pastoral opinion. Clear biblical categories are adultery and when an unbeliever deserts the marriage. I'd like to get more into that in the cross-training time. We'll go there. But let me leave you with this thought. Let me leave you with this. My garage door has been broken for a while. And on Saturday, I fixed it. It was one of those, should have brought the piece in. It was a big white gear, plastic gear like this big. You've probably seen those, right? Uh, maybe some was broken on you. And I, I replaced it. I bought like a $7 replacement. I'm not going to buy a whole new door. I bought the replacement. Watched the YouTube video of the guy fixing it. He was brilliant. I'm not. Um, and so I spent four hours yesterday fixing it. I think the guy did it in half an hour on the video. <laughs> But it took me four hours. It's fixed. I had to have that thing fixed. It was driving me crazy. I mean, I was so tired of lifting the door up when I had this button. I should be able to push and just, you know, it should go up. As a man, we will invest hours in fixing things and building things and hunting things. Hours. At the end of the day, you could look at the day and you said, I spent my whole day doing that, but I fixed it. Would you put that kind of energy into your marriage if things are a little dicey right now? Would you put that energy into it? Would you creatively think about what can you do to re-energize things? Can you go on weekly dates can you go to like a weekend to remember, you know, a marriage conference, like weekend to remember, which is an awesome one that I've done. Uh, laugh your way to a better marriage. You know, can, can you do one of these things to reinvest? You'll spend hours. And ladies, let me tell you about something about you. You're not off the hook either. No. Because um, this is marriage season for the Philia family. My brother's getting married. Kayla needs a dress. She's a flower girl. Flower girl, right? Flower girl. We're looking online. We're going to the bridal shop. You know, you, you, say yes to the dress. <laughs> hours. Hours. Investment. Shopping. And the guy, and, and, and the husband, he's usually like, well, it's white, isn't it? It covers you, doesn't it? Price is right. <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, <laughs> invest. Ladies, would you invest? What can you say to that man that you said those vows to all those years ago? What can you say to him now that would build him up and show the respect you have for him? No, he's not a perfect man. But he's your man. He's your man. And you bought that white dress for that day. And you spend way too many hours trying to pick it out. And somebody probably spent way too much money on it for one day of use. But you did that because you wanted to invest. So invest.
in your marriage. Let me pray for you. Will you stand up now? I hope that you can see that at this church we don't treat divorce like a special category of sin. We don't. So I preach about all kinds of sins. Um, And I hope you feel like the Lord is faithful to you and he loves you and it's based on nothing you've done. It's based on his love for you. I'd remind you of that. That was Malachi. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you when you lie. He loves you what you've stolen. He loves you when you've committed mistakes in your marriage. He loves you. He doesn't love what you did, but he's committed to you. Let me pray.